Hey, this is a special announcement about a film called Stone Locals. It just premiered on August 27th. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds like a climbing film, you wouldn't be wrong, but... Okay, you know how this podcast is kind of not really a climbing podcast? This film is sort of like that. It's a film about the soul of rock climbing, and it's told through the lens of five interwoven stories. And I bet you're asking yourself, what does the soul of rock climbing even look like? As climbing continues to grow, the people who anchor its core and community have more responsibility than ever before. In this new film, Patagonia gracefully tells the story of five of these anchors. I don't want to tell you too much, but I, your podcast host, am one of these five stories told. You know how we're always talking about vulnerability? Well, you can't preach what you don't practice. After you listen to this episode, go to the Patagonia YouTube channel and check out the full-length film, Stone Locals. This film is brought to you by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Deuter is known for fit, comfort, and ventilation. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in good-fitting backpacks, so you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting Sendy, whether at the crag or in the Alpine. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive one free week. It helps support the show and it helps support you. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress. And tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Appalachian Gear Company, whose alpaca fleece hoodie won the 2019 Backpackers Editor's Choice Award. We've never actually won an award, but this one seems legit. 
The alpaca hoodie offers unmatched breathability, and you can wear it for days in comfort under a pack or harness, thanks to its durability and design. This lightweight, eco-friendly fabric is the sustainable performance piece that you didn't even know you were missing. You can take 10% off your order by using discount code for the love of climbing. Appalachian Gear Company stands by responsibly sourced alpaca fiber and this podcast. I was doing ecstasy and cocaine in like the summer of eighth grade going to ninth grade. I could have just stopped there and not taken the path. I could have just been a kid that like was a little wild in high school and I didn't need to continue doing it, but I was ashamed, I was upset, I was, I was in denial. Do you know the difference between shame and guilt? Because this episode is about that and the link between addiction and shame. Guilt is something that stems from our moral conscience. It lets us know when we fucked up or done something that violates our moral compass. Right versus wrong. Guilt comes with embarrassment. I know this because I ate all of the good stuff from the ice cream the other night and then put it back into the freezer like nothing ever happened. Just got all up in there with my spoon and dug a little tunnel to the bottom. If you can relate to this, then you know that this act fucks with the integrity of ice cream so badly to the point where you leave behind a little puddle of melty mush. It's not good. Am I ashamed? No. Do I feel guilty? A little. Guilt is that little voice that can motivate you to correct your behavior, or in my case, to stop being such an ice cream miner. It can push you into connecting with others in order to repair what's wrong, but shame keeps you in a cyclical mindset of self-loathing. It causes you to hide in order to minimize the embarrassment. And both of these things are absolutely 100% normal. They're both natural emotions that we all experience at one time or another. This is Sarah's story, and this episode is about addressing the stigma surrounding addiction. It's possible that with the current COVID-19 crisis, that stigma has become even more problematic. And addiction is such a complex disorder with so many components, but the healthcare and justice system, and honestly, just people in general, continue to see it as moral weakness. Shame and addiction are painfully, tragically, and inevitably intertwined with one another. Shame feeds addiction, and with it comes a chronic belief that you aren't worthy of love or respect or even a happy life. People cope with shame in a variety of ways, but the thing is, on the other side of it, once you can identify the shame, there's finding acceptance, building a better life, and ultimately redefining your own self-worth. I probably had just as like normal as a childhood you can get, just a normal suburban life. Both my parents worked. We never didn't have money. I came from like a very close family, like just in general, they probably couldn't love me more. One of the things I think about is like, well, what on earth happened to me that caused me to like take the path I did? An unreasonable amount of friends have died and sometimes I think of like, well, why did this happen and why did I do this or why did my life take this turn? Like. I was given so many opportunities and I've literally, I've shitted away a lot of opportunities that I was given and I was lucky and fortunate in life and I still took these turns and there's people that don't get these opportunities and 
puts like a guilt on you of like, I was given a step up in life and still didn't take it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sorta. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirtbag Climbers. Here's the show. So I probably started doing like drugs in general when I was in like middle school going to high school was when I started doing drugs. And it was very recreational, not like a constant thing, but it was always if your friends were hanging out or something, we were either smoking pot or finding pills or it's always something like we weren't doing it on a regular basis, but it was, oh, well, let's all save money up so we can go try this or we could do that and we can do this. And it was something we always like looked forward to. Okay, you don't have to admit it to me or to anybody else for that matter. But if you ask yourself honestly, a lot of our adolescences had stories similar to this one. The time when I thought I was cool enough to try smoking pot for the first time, my mom found it and she thought it was oregano. Quote unquote bad kid stuff is a normal enough part of growing up. But for Sarah, it kept snowballing, and she was doing cocaine by the summer of eighth grade going into ninth, which is some pretty heavy stuff. I think about it like I could have just stopped there and done it just in high school and not taken the path. I could have just been a kid that like was a little wild in high school and I didn't need to continue doing it, but my life did take that path and it definitely went there. And I ended up doing a lot more heavy drugs. And as I went through high school, I could tell looking back on it now, as I progressed, I got more focused in the types of drugs I was doing and more specific and more regimented. And I still think I could have like, if I stopped after high school and didn't continue through college, I probably could have just had a normal life, whatever. But I just continued to do drugs in a very specific way and I ended up getting preferences for drugs which is never a good thing it was no longer just well this is what we always did what are you gonna do on the weekend like oh gonna find something to get high that's just what we always did so it became from just in high school just partying to well this is what we do for recreation and it got out of hand you say that college is kind of like the dark rabbit hole to finding these other specific drugs I would say ironically I've always been very driven and focused so in college I was very focused on doing well and I actually didn't have any friends in college and partially I think why that was is when I went to college and like I thought oh everyone's gonna party and we're gonna have fun but then everyone was getting drunk and I'm sitting there taking a handful of pills and they're like that's not normal and that I think is one of the first times I realized like what I'm doing is not the norm. And I think that was my first wake-up call. So I was like, oh, well, these kids, they just don't understand me. So I ended up more often than not, I would just go find my old friends from high school and just hang out with them and do the same thing as them. Except they weren't in college. They were doing nothing. They didn't have as fortunate circumstances as I did to go to college. So they were, you know, trying to find a job, but they were still living with mom. And so they had more time to just do recreational drugs. We could bond over like just getting high 
yeah, it's familiar was comfortable. I didn't have to talk to these new kids and make new friends because these other kids I was hanging out with, even if I would like hop from friend group to friend group to friend group, we never needed to get to know each other that well because there wasn't much talking going on. And even if there is a lot of talking going on, nobody takes it seriously because it's all just high talk. Like nobody actually cares or is listening because everyone's in their own world. Did it ever feel like you were running away from stuff? No, that's the funny thing. Like you hear it in movies and I keep trying to figure out like, well, what was I trying to cope with? It's just all I ever did. It's all I ever knew. And it's not to say that like I didn't have other options and I didn't have, like I said, my family was as loving as one could be, but it's just from high school, like that's what we did for fun. I think I could have just stopped there. I could have gone on to college and like really taken life a lot more seriously, even though I was doing my projects in college and I was staying late, probably like till 11, 12 o'clock at night, sometimes getting my work done. And it's not that I didn't do good and I didn't focus. It was that there was always that, that thing in the background. That thing in the background is Sarah's addiction. And we casually sling that word around all of the time. We see it on social media. We use it in our everyday conversation. America loves hyperbole. Exaggerated statements not meant to be taken literally, but often used to create a really strong impression. For example, when I said that I was literally starving the other day, I was not actually suffering from malnutrition, but instead was just really quite hungry. And thus, I was only figuratively starving. But saying I'm figuratively starving had the wrong flow to it. You know what I mean? Like, there are just too many syllables to deal with. Truthfully, nobody is actually addicted to cookies or rock climbing or the new Taylor Swift album. We just really like eating our yogurt frosted covered feelings while listening to track nine on repeat for an hour. Yeah, anybody else? Anyway, most people, including myself, don't intend to be disingenuous, but when it comes to these phrases, ableist language really does matter. When people apply an illness to themselves, it's easy to forget that they don't have to deal with it regularly. That rock fall gave me a small panic attack, or I'm really OCD about racking my gear. There's nothing inherently wrong with certain exaggerations. Personally, I love the visual of somebody trying to eat an entire horse. But at the intersections of language and mental health, most, if not all of these, aren't really a choice. It probably isn't the intention, but it doesn't mean that it isn't wounding to a person with actual OCD or bipolar personality disorder or addiction. Beyond potentially hurt feelings, think about how this contributes to the stigma surrounding mental health by facilitating this light switch attitude. It perpetuates the belief that people really can turn these feelings on and off at will. There's also a negative association that comes with this type of language, which is incredibly dangerous because when these illnesses are perceived within this context, it only strengthens the stigma and creates more shame. Author Brene Brown describes shame as the intensely painful feeling of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. The cycle of shame and addiction feed into and off each other. I've just always had a mind that races, and not that I did drugs to stop my mind from racing. I just always needed to be doing something. 
as well as whatever the task was at hand I needed to be multitasking, whether that's getting high and doing schoolwork or I don't know. Like it helps you kind of like hyper focus. Um, Maybe to an extent. It's not that I was like doing uppers though, because you hear some high school kids doing like, or even college kids doing like Adderall so they can like stay up late. And I think I just needed anything. Another thing to keep in mind is that people aren't born addicted to drugs. They start out as non-addicts, meaning that they have a life before habitual drug use. Like so many people, Sarah had a life before and outside all of this. She went to college and was getting good grades, and she ate pizza on weekends and drove her car to work. Millions of other people hold down jobs, pay their bills, and maintain normal, healthy relationships, just like Sarah, all while being in the middle of a crippling addiction. There's this idea that drug abuse is relegated to strung out junkies who live on the street, which fools us all into believing that functional users are normal. The truth is that functional addicts are not always slumped over in alleyways or bars all of the time. They can make breakfast and shop on Amazon and get nine hours of sleep every night and maintain a certain lifestyle and still be a daily and habitual user. You can live in both worlds. And Sarah did. I think for the most part, I don't want to say they didn't know because that would make them sound like idiots. Um, I mean, I, I think, think it doesn't, though. I mean, I think that it's really, it's actually really easy to hide really it, big things. It is. It's so incredibly easy, especially if, I mean, they worked a normal amount. They didn't overwork themselves, but if you think my parents were working a normal nine to five by the time they got home and by the time I got home from school, if I went to a friend's house after school, by the time I got home, you see each other, what, like maybe an hour a day? Mm-hmm. We weren't like a eat dinner together type family. We don't want to make our parents sound like idiots, but I told you the oregano story, right? Point is, you don't know what to be looking for if you aren't even looking for it. On top of that, you might expect your kids are like doing pot or whatever, and maybe you'll smile it on them. But if your kids are like eating pills or stealing pills from their parents or doing cocaine, you're not looking for cocaine in a 14-year-old's bedroom. The amount of things like just a regular doctor would prescribe that you can find in their parents' medicine cabinet is extraordinary. Like anything from like benzodiazepines like Xanax and Klonopin and like every kid at school was just trading their parents' medicine cabinets, essentially. This was what high school looked like for Sarah. In a lot of ways, she didn't feel like she missed out on her adolescence because she got to spend that time with friends that she really loved. Sarah was 14. It wasn't until years later that she started to witness what her childhood friends' lives looked like beyond high school, past those seemingly carefree days. Actually, my one friend that was probably my best friend throughout high school passed away in December from a drug overdose. yeah, it was, it was very hard. We weren't in contact for many years because drugs have a way of pushing people apart. But, I mean, it's sad. It's like a similar story to all of my friends. Like, he specifically was found, like, in an abandoned warehouse days later. And I just it's just an all-too-familiar story with so many people. And it sucks. I was, I was not using for probably uh, 
maybe like five or six years at this point. And, and it's really hard because I keep thinking about like, oh, if only we had like reconciled at some point or somehow and maybe we still would have been friends. But that's, I, I try to remind myself like, in all honesty, that is 100,000% not the case. We wouldn't have been friends. We have very different lives. I still very deeply cared about him. He's probably my best friend ever. But at the same time, like, we wouldn't have gotten along. We would have had nothing to bond over or to talk about or relate about anymore these days. And and I think that's also what hurts. That, like, even if we did still talk, we, w we probably wouldn't have liked each other very much. A significant amount of my friends are not here anymore. Like, at the end of this week, there's going to be another anniversary and then another at the end of the month. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. But I do think about a couple friends I still have and I still am in contact with, but I think about, like, how little I talk to them. And the reasons I don't talk to them is because I can't go to the bar every day. Like, I just don't find it fun. Like, I don't want to be drunk. I don't want to be in a bar. It's just not fun for me. And then... Again, we just have nothing to relate on. They're like, oh, what'd you do? And I'm like, I went to work and I went climbing. And then the constant story is just, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to find a job or I think I'm going to try and quit drinking or I'm going to try and like quit cigarettes. I'm like, yeah, I've heard it before. I'm just sick of hearing it. And I get that it's difficult. It's, it's the hardest thing ever because everyone always says, like, you hear in like the TV and the movies, like people just keep using because they don't want to go through their withdrawal. And it's like, I mean, it's a reminder of like why you should keep doing drugs. That's what your body is trying to tell you because you're getting sick without them. But nobody's doing it because they don't want to be sick. And it had started with pills like Oxycontin because it was very readily available. And I think that's how a lot of people start. And we'd like literally put them on foil and smoke them like a crack addict. It turned to heroin very quickly. So I was doing a lot of heroin and I was shooting it up. And part of when I got sober was because I was in and out of the hospital and I was having some kidney issues. But at the time I was like, this is not related. Like no way is this related. My, I don't really have a problem. I'm just using occasionally. But looking back, I'm like, how could you have been so diluted and just disassociated from reality? I was using like multiple times a day, every day, for like years. When you hear in the news of like addicts just like saying, oh, I can stop when I want, I legitimately was saying that to myself and like, no, I'm not like the people you see in movies. That, that can't be the case, that, that would never happen. I fully believe that when you use drugs that often, it genuinely has a way of switching your brain chemistry because your brain is now adapted to the receptors that accept that drug. And in order to keep getting that drug, it needs to tell you that it's in like survival mode, that I need this because now my brain's adapted to it. So I keep needing this. So you will tell yourself anything because your brain literally thinks it needs it to survive because it's constantly in that survival mode. And looking back on it, it's like, if you were trying to tell me the sky was blue and I was so wholeheartedly convinced that it was green, I a thousand percent thought that I was fine. I was like, there's no possible way. My dad found literally like hundreds of empty baggies 
and needles in my room. At one point, he found my stash of, like, I don't know why I didn't just throw them out, but he just found, like, hundreds of empty baggies and, like, thousands of dollars worth of drugs. It was, like, it's probably the thing I'm most ashamed of is that they found out, because I love my parents so much. We're so close. Shame is such a corrosive human emotion, but it's also universally experienced. Not only can it be linked to addiction, but also things like depression, sexual violence, and bullying. Shame can come up through appearance and body image, mental or physical health, the perception of being weak. At its core, shame is a fear of disconnection. I was ashamed, I was upset, I was, I was in denial, um, I don't know. I mean, I was so lucky they didn't kick me out. My parents would have never done that. They're not that type of people, but I feel like a lot of parents would. But their method of, they just literally kept me under lock and key. I like to say I'm lucky enough that I never got to a point where I was stealing to get money or drugs. I've seen that and... It's funny that I think I'm lucky enough that I didn't steal from family. Um, I know when I was doing it, I was telling myself, no, this is the last time, this is the last time. But I feel like I was telling myself that for years. I feel like a lot of people do. I wasn't the only one. I'm just the one that ended up actually kicking it. The line between guilt and shame is constantly blurred. Guilt tells us, I did something bad, but shame tells us that we are the bad thing. When her parents found out that Sarah was using drugs, she unavoidably had to deal with both. It was complicated. It was messy. I imagine a lot of doors being slammed during those months because Sarah was still living at home and her parents kept her under lock and key. She lost all of her freedom and was only allowed to go to work. Her parents came down hard and soft at the same time. They were an iron fist in a velvet glove, as they say. They were gentle and sweet and loving in so many ways, but when it came to Sarah's addiction, they were uncompromising. And they had to be. My parents are so stern in a sense that like when they tell you to do something, when they're serious about it, if they tell you like, no, you are going to college, you're gonna go to work, you're not going to do drugs, I'm gonna take you to work, you're going to find a job, you're like, well, shit, I guess I got to. They kind of have this way where you don't think you can say no. When they say things a certain way, you're like, oh, I don't have an option otherwise. Sarah didn't carry this heavy burden by herself, though. Shame was something that her parents carried as well, to the point that, to this day, they still won't talk about it. Her parents handled her addiction the best way they knew how, which meant living under full dictatorship until their daughter got clean. Sarah never went through a recovery program. She just worked and came home and worked and came home, and that was her life until she could get clean. And in the meantime, there was no drug rehab. And Sarah did eventually get clean. That would have been too embarrassing for them. Like, me and my parents have never talked about this since, ever. Since the day they found this stuff, we've never talked about it. Nobody knows. I don't even know if my siblings know. And like, I don't want to talk about it to anyone. I guess there is some shame attached to it. It's just 
difficult to talk about and admitting that you fucked up pretty bad for years is difficult. Towards the tail end of my using, it was immediately making me sick and I was up for days on end. I mean, you hear like people on heroin, they're always like half asleep and they're nodding out. But for me, it had this odd effect where it would do that in the immediate aftermath. But like long term, hours later, I'd be very wired because I'd be very itchy. So all night long, I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd be like scratching my skin open. So there was like a portion of time where I was like probably didn't sleep more than a few hours at a time at night for maybe a month or so, and I think that kind of led up into the portion of me into the hospital, and then eventually my parents finding my stuff. So I think being clean for a while and then looking back on it, I can realize that it was literally making me sick to my stomach. I don't know why I liked it. It wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't even close to enjoyable. But somehow, even to this day, my body still thinks like, no, you want that. And like, my, my brain, tells me I don't because it's going to get me sick, but at the same time, it's like, you need that. This is something you need. No matter how functional addicts rationalize their addictions, there are still consequences to their actions. Sarah learned some of these consequences firsthand. She lived them. She was lucky enough to live through them when so many of her childhood friends did not. And now she's in the process of learning and healing and recovering. They say that recovery is a lifelong process, not because as a person who's recovering, you're in the throes of substance addiction forever, but because recovery requires a lifelong commitment. It's a process that requires continual work, and that's work that Sarah committed to doing. And I ended up just seeing a lot of people online that like I knew and they were climbing. And so I decided to try it out and I did have one friend that took me climbing and I liked it. So then from there I was like, I think I'm gonna just go to the gym and figure it out. I mean, I don't have anyone to climb with, but there's this thing called bouldering and I'll just try it out. And so I went to the gym and they were really like welcoming. Everyone was super nice there and they just kind of, if I was like struggling on something, there was like a bunch of like core group of girls that were like, working problems with me and stuff. And that really helped because climbing, like, it essentially filled all of the empty time I had. And that became my new thing. I just dove right into it. I think in the first, like, six months of me climbing, I was there probably, like, four days a week. I, like, wanted to have a schedule of, like, Tuesdays and Thursdays, but then I was like, oh, well, Wednesday, I don't have anything to do either, so I guess I'm gonna be there Wednesday, and then well, what am I gonna do on a Friday night? So I guess I'll go Friday, and then maybe Saturday, too. And it was just so good for me because climbing's not like a sport like running where if you were to run, all you have to do is move your feet and your mind just can run wild with whatever on earth you're thinking about. In my case, just thinking about my past, why did I make these decisions? Because it's something I think about quite a lot. But with climbing, you don't have time for that because you're thinking, okay, well, if I put my feet here, how am I going to move my hands? And maybe if I turn my hip in and if I get my foot up or if I do a heel hook, then maybe I can like drop my knee in. It fills your mind with like, you can't think about all of your problems in life you're sitting there thinking about and trying to figure out the problem of like, how you can rearrange your body or work the problem to get to the next puzzle piece. For me, it's become key that I have a schedule and not only a schedule, but things to fill my time completely. 
I was never very athletic in life. I've never been athletic. Climbing has changed other things in my life that I think are really important. I got way more muscular and way more confident in how I look and how I present myself. And I think I'm a lot nicer of a person because people don't pick on you. So you don't need to be mean as like a defensive mechanism. But also I think it's just added so much confidence because there's something else in my life that I think I'm, I'm okay at. I'm not the best climber on earth, but I'm pretty like decent at it. feel stronger like sometimes there's a climb in the gym and like if it has a dynamic movement or you have to cut feet but then like you can get it and you like stick the move you're like hell yeah so it like it just changes how you act and how you feel just in everything else in life as well even if you don't think you had like a huge confidence issue before now that you know you feel like really good there's just that extra bump in life where I don't know you don't need to be high to just feel good It is so easy to fall back into a lifestyle because you do hear about everyone that fell back into it and then aren't here today. I try and keep it a very realistic perspective and that's part of why I don't keep track of it because does it really matter? Every day is like day one because the smallest thing can push you over the edge. It doesn't matter how long you've been clean. It can all go away in an instance and it's good to, in my perspective, it's good to just always be aware of that. Don't get too comfortable because everything can change in like a moment. Sarah doesn't keep track of how many years she's been clean. Sarah focuses on the good things in her life, like climbing. She also doesn't talk about addiction with her friends or family or how it took over years of her life. In 2019, Sarah wrote to me, I was a heroin user for many years and will always remain an addict. Climbing is one of the major things that has helped me to remain drug-free for the last five. I've never spoken about it before and honestly probably haven't processed the experience properly. I think that if I can talk about it on the podcast, maybe not only can I deal with it better, but maybe I can help other people deal as well. Addiction is a need-hate relationship. It can be a terrible secret. It can frame the very shape of your life. It's the white noise behind many lives, and everyone's experience with it is unique. For those who suffer from addiction, there's a steep price to pay. You'll fight more mental battles than the average person, but you'll also learn how to experience more compassion towards yourself in coping with the challenges and imperfections that inevitably come with life. And yes, I'm going to quote Brene Brown one more time here because you know you love it. Shame can't be felt by those without a capacity for empathy. Those who feel shame have the power to control it. Empathy is the antidote to shame. I don't really talk about it to people. I mean, if people would ask, I probably wouldn't deny it, but I don't really get too in depth about it because it's just, it's just uncomfortable. There's still people thinking of like, oh, well, they're just a stupid junkie. That is just such a common statement or like, yeah, but they made that choice. And you'll hear the argument of, well, it's a disease or well, it's not. And people with cancer didn't decide to have cancer, but people that are doing drugs, they made the decision. And that is something I struggled with too, of like, I made this decision, I can't tell people it's not my fault. Cause that's also, 
you have to take responsibility for what you did. Yes, it may be a disease, but I made these choices at every single step of the way before I decided to put a needle in my arm, before I decided to take a pill. It was a choice. But there's also way more complicated factors that go into it. I also acknowledge that your brain chemistry is also affected by the things that you take. And everyone that says that oh, it's an epidemic. I still think people don't understand that I came from a white suburban family that loved me more than anything on earth and I still went down this path. It can be anyone and I think that was part of why I didn't think it could ever happen to me is because the stupid news tells me that this doesn't happen to people like me and I was ignorant for thinking that. Having gone through it, it is so shitty. So many people I know are dead. I have to keep a list. Anyone that has died from drugs or drug-related things, like we say it's an epidemic and people are starting to agree, but when we say an epidemic, it means you have a 25-year-old girl that knows 40 people that are dead. What is it called when it's 40 people. It hits so close to home and I hope people just start realizing it because I don't, I mean, granted I'm sad, but like I don't want to keep being sad. I don't want to keep hearing these stories. In high school and in college and stuff, I wasn't the happiest and maybe that was because I was just muting my feelings, but I never thought I'd be this happy just on my own. I never thought this was possible to be just generally happy on your own, but also just so full of other things. And now I'm like, when am I gonna find the time to do all of the things I wanna do and do all of the trips, but like all of like the books I wanna read. It's like living life in full color. Yeah, there's like not enough time to do all of the things I wanna do because there's just so much I wanna do. And I feel like when I was on drugs, there was nothing else I wanted to do. That, that was it. I won't say that like, I don't want to do drugs now, because that's always going to be a thing. I'm probably hardwired permanently, but there are so many other things. So, while we all agree that you can't actually be addicted to climbing, if you could be, here are some of your reasons why. I'm addicted to climbing because it's a ritual, it's personal, it's unpredictable. When you step into the vertical, unknown. All moves are commitment, each pitch is partnership, and every day is discovery. Rock reflection of oneself. Inspires respect. Mostly motivates more than expected. Good recipe for fun. What is so addicting about climbing for me? The contentment that I've never felt with anything else in my life. How it washes away my anxiety and depression issues and makes me feel the happiness that I didn't even know existed until the very first time I climbed. The friendships, the relationship with the earth that really doesn't care about us, but I care about it with my whole being. Hi, Kathy. Climbing for me is so addicting because I am a math nerd, so I absolutely love solving problems, and that is pretty much my career path (laughs) as a data scientist. So 
climbing is just solving a problem with your body. So for me, it's super interesting to try to find the beta that works for me personally, especially when it's not the quote unquote intended beta. Climbing is addicting to me because it is a constant challenge and I don't always know what that challenge will be. Sometimes it's a physical challenge, sometimes it's mental, but no matter how long you've been climbing, you can always find a new challenge. While I've learned that I don't need to push myself every day, even the chill days offer a challenge, whether it's climbing with grace, which is not my strong suit, or simply showing up. For me, climbing is addictive because other things, when I try and try again, I don't always get it eventually after however many tries. But when I'm climbing, I see the progress and I can make that mind-body connection and send. And there's really nothing more empowering. addicted to climbing because it's a moving meditation for me. I'm a really anxious person and when I'm climbing it's really the only time that I can be present in the moment. I'm not thinking about my anxieties, I'm not thinking about my fears or my stresses or my insecurities. All I'm thinking about is trying my hardest. Climbing is the one time that I can just be confident about what I can do and who I am. Um, so for me, that's just really, just a really great space to be in. You make another move, and then you make another move, and then you make another move. And each time you do a move that you never imagined you would do, you would never imagine that you'd really be capable, maybe as far as you've come. And then every time it's a little bit different, still challenging, but different and still there. So you make this move, and you make this other move, and it just keeps going from there. And it's just kind of endless. Each move will kind of question different things about you and what you're made of. But you know, you, you do another move. <laughs> yeah. Hey Kathy, what's so addicting to climbing for my personality? Um, I would have to go with the long hikes in with good friends. I inevitably have very deep conversations, silly conversations. You know, we just talk about everything on the trail from sex, relationships work, travel, aspirations, goals. We really cover it all and I leave every trip feeling invigorated to do something in my life, even if I didn't climb anything that hardcore that weekend. <laughs> yeah, love your podcast. Thanks for posting. Why am I addicted to climbing so much? I'm not sure, except that I guess the rock levels the playing field. You see it, four foot six, I am hashtag the authentic t-rex climber i have a pretty severe physical disability and i can't reach my hands over my head but still i'm out there climbing as often as i can get the support and get to a crag yeah i'm certainly not the fastest actually i'm probably one of the slowest but at the end it's about people who support those of us with disabilities getting out there and climbing and just when i think about giving up they remind me that we're all in this together. And if they're in it, 
so am I. Now I just gotta find my way to the top. I'm addicted to rock climbing because of the happiness it brings me and the joy. Um, so often people search for a larger, more philosophical meaning in climbing. And for me, it's so, so simple. It just always relentlessly, tirelessly makes me smile. Even when I'm suffering, even when it sucks, it continues to make me smile every time I come back to it. In a world where oftentimes our mental health and emotional health kind of teeters on a dangerous cliff, and in my world where my job in the past six years has been a challenging, fulfilling, rewarding, but oftentimes stressful professional career, climbing has been my opportunity to give back to myself to make myself smile, to decompress, to enjoy slowing down and really focusing on myself, my own mental health, well-being, and the things that I need to do to stay happy and more importantly, to stay motivated to continue making change and doing good for the world. I think I see climbing as my refill to be able to continue doing good work and the stuff that I care about most. Thanks for asking the question, Kathy. If you or a loved one are struggling with substance use or addiction, contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-HELP. This national helpline is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year treatment, referral, and information service. They offer their services in both English and Spanish to both individuals and families facing mental and substance abuse disorders. That's 1-800-662-4357. Or visit their website at www.samhsa.gov. You are not alone, and healing starts by breaking the cycle of shame and addiction. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support this podcast, please check out patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can sponsor us for as little as $1 per episode. It really helps keep this podcast going, and I'm so grateful for all of your help. Special shout out to Cameron McAlpine because he makes this thing sound good. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. LA Outdoor personal care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time. 